Hello, and welcome to Breaking Protocol. I am your host, Bob Sadaway. My guest today is someone most of you are familiar with. Craig McCartney has returned for some day drinking and politics, which, if I say so myself, always goes pretty well together. Craig writes a weekly column entitled, Well, Let Me Say This About That, for He Said Magazine. There has been so much going on in the world of politics in the last couple of weeks, not the least of which, the passing of the notorious RBG. Justice Ginsburg's passing was something I have refrained from chiming in on, primarily because I'm not remotely an expert on the Supreme Court. And every social media political pundit has already ensured that the rest of us are well aware of their positions. But then I read Craig's column this week and was absolutely intrigued with his view of how we move forward. And I thought all of you would benefit from Craig's insight. So welcome back to Breaking Protocol, Craig. Thank you. It's good to be back. And thanks for the nice words about the column. Yeah, well, you know, it was it was a great column this week. I have to I have to admit it was so intriguing the way you went about explaining your position in a very in between the lines required reading to truly understand <laughs> what you were getting at. And let's just kick off with your column this week and let's talk about what was for a short time, I would say, a very highlighted news cycle. So much has happened since her passing and since we took the time to honor her. In the column, because I hit that whole subject of referencing replacing her on the court, which I submit is impossible. Uh, justices uh, on the Supreme Court and on the federal bench or, or even vacancies in any company that you work for, you know, replacing is when you put a new cog in the old wheel. And I would assert that the notorious RBG is never going to be replaced. I think I said something about, you know, somebody may sit in her chair and may fill that vacancy, but she's not really going to be replaced. In, in my life, uh, with, part, with the, perhaps the sole exception of Thurgood Marshall, most Americans don't really uh, have any sense of who the Supreme Court justices are. Very few, even if they could, name them wouldn't know that much about them. And that includes me. I'm not saying I'm any different. But Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a cultural phenomenon. She was an incredible uh, presence on the court for all of the many years that she served on it. And she will not be replaced. And ultimately, for those people who, like me, felt totally gut-punched, when I found out that she had died, the only replacement available is ourselves. You know, it's interesting you mention the gap that that mm -hmm. she leaves behind. And this is a gap that I, I think you're right. It, it will never be filled. It's interesting to me that you address it that we won't fill it with someone else, but we will fill it with right. ourselves. I'm curious mm -hmm. if you could elaborate a little more for those who may not really understand the reading between the lines there on what you're actually saying. 
it kind of ties back to what the late and very great John Lewis, who uh, we also lost this year, when he talked about the need to get into good trouble. And I think that part of what folks can do to fill the gap left behind by the death of RPG is to remember that getting into good trouble, as the late and very great John Lewis said, we lost him also this year. I hate 2020. Yeah, it's been a bummer year for sure. It's been a bummer, yeah. We have to, I think, individually look and see. And I, th- and I, and I think that one of the lessons of Notorious RBG's life is she was very strategic and very thoughtful and very focused. And, you know, she... Uh, when you look into her life and you see the ways as a young woman that she was specifically discriminated against obstacles that were in front of her when you look at those things then when you come and you and you see how when she had the uh, ability a few years later to hit those issues dead on she didn't do it by fighting uh, the obvious fight you know, she went to court and attacked sexual uh, discrimination, sex gender discrimination, in support of a man who was being discriminated against on the basis of being a man. And that is, to my way of thinking, the kind of focused and intelligent strategy that folks who would seek to emulate her uh, should employ. It's interesting the comments that you make about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the path, the strategic directed path that she moved along in accomplishing not only what she accomplished for herself, but what she accomplished for the American people. And then, comparatively speaking, to also the late, great John Lewis, who also was strategic in his approach. But their approaches were about as polar opposite as, in my view, as one could get. John Lewis was a protester with a loud voice and that used his voice to motivate and encourage others. Where... Ruth Bader Ginsburg really didn't even have a voice and had to navigate the path of her activism in a very, very different way. Yet, both of them, I think, were coming to the same place. I totally agree with that because when, you know, John Lewis, his legacy includes fighting the battle for uh, civil rights at the street level, literally from the bridge. But it was a more basic approach to to activism and to changing uh, the system. And he worked all, you know, I mean, you're talking about an arc of 60 years of activism that led him to be arguably the most revered member in the United States House of Representatives. And he will not be replaced. 
That's the inter- that's and an interesting point. He will point. not be replaced. He will, he not, be will replaced. not be replaced. Yeah. And I think it is very interesting to look at them in juxtaposition because John Lewis, who's uh, initial, we think of him in, as being a part of, and, and a significant part of the civil rights movement, actually incurring physical harm in doing so. But as he moved forward in his career as what I would argue was a human rights activist. He also spoke out and was able to affect change for not just black people and communities of color, but also for the LGBTQ community and was on the right side of all kinds of issues that were not necessarily the originating issue from which he surfaced much as RBG. I came at it from the issue from a different place. She wasn't fighting on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. She was fighting in front of the Supreme Court and and made her reputation uh, on the basis of getting Supreme Court decisions that struck down uh, laws that discriminated on the basis of sex. And But in her long career, uh, she also, like John Lewis, was there for the other communities, the intersectionality of these human rights interests. You know, she was on the Supreme Court that gave, uh, gave us marriage equality. You know, she, she was there too. And I think, and I hadn't really thought of that until you brought it up, I think it's an interesting thing to look at those two uh, icons, their differences, and their similarities, and despite the fact that they came from two very different places, they ended up in the year 2020 being irreplaceable icons in the movement toward justice. It is interesting in the respect that their paths really crossed in so many ways in the mm-hmm. respect that they were fighting for very much the same thing and doing it from very, very different places. With that said, it didn't take five minutes for uh, the president <laughs> to decide that that he would nominate a new Supreme Court justice, which I think it's fair to say that is within his right to do so. Whether you agree that he portrayed the appropriate amount of respect toward the justice when she passed, giving it, you know, more than five minutes before he runs Mm -hmm. out and nominates a new justice. Now, how Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans decided to respond, I think, is an easier argument that their moral compasses were somewhat misguided. Broken. They 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 have a they, there's a compass over there. Are you? See? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was I was I was waiting for for your for your analysis of this. <laughs> uh, apparently, there isn't a moral compass over there. Um, you know, the fact that Mitch McConnell couldn't bring himself to go to a private ceremony in the Capitol Rotunda to honor the only woman to ever lie in state in that rotunda 
she will always be Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Mm-hmm. And she will always, or, or certainly for as long as any of us live, she will be the most widely known name in the general public to say, name Supreme Court justices that you can name. And hers will be one of the first, if not the only, that many Americans will be able to to say. I mean, her brand is on par with Coca-Cola. Oh, oh I'm telling you, it's absolutely, it's something we've never... There, we've never seen. Um, so with that said, why do, you, why do you think that Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans made the decision to not honor her appropriately and make this truly a partisan outcome? Well, I think when it comes to Mitch McConnell, that he has demonstrated this in a way that if there was any doubt before, there's literally no doubt now. Mitch McConnell will do what is, in his estimation, uh, in his own best interest to do. Now, I'm not, I am not criticizing people acting in self-interest, but, and his self-interest is to retain his position as majority leader of the Senate. And to the end of a, to, to his end, which is to accumulate, consolidate, and wield power, the fact that he could do a 180 from what he did in 2016 when he denied Merrick Garland even a hearing after he had been nominated by President Obama, which should not have been surprising to anyone four years ago, because that's who Mitch McConnell is. Uh, and then to, to do the 180 and open himself up to all of these, you know, and I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to be a little bit critical of people who can't think of a more original insult than to call somebody a hypocrite. Because clearly, calling Mitch McConnell a hypocrite rolls off his back like water off of a turtle. The identification of hypocrisy is no longer disqualifying in politics. So let's just, let's just stop that. Well, we elected Donald Trump. That put an end to that. Yes, exactly. And I'm not saying, you know me, I'm an, I'm an equal opportunity criticizer. There's certainly hypocrisy in the Democratic House, too. But they're not in power right now, so that's not the point. We'll talk about that maybe next year uh, on a podcast about what, what may be happening in the Democratic administration that warrants criticism. But at this particular juncture... That that whole thing of talking and crying about the the hypocrisy of the Republicans and what Lindsey Graham said in 2016 and all this is like, okay, I get it. But you know what this is about? This isn't about hypocrisy. This is about something a little stronger. This is about uh, an absolute lack of personal integrity. You know, it's interesting. I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts this past week, and Ted Cruz happened to be one of the guests on the show. And it was interesting that Ted Cruz claims that there is no hypocrisy here because the situation is not the same. Mitch McConnell denied Merrick Garland a hearing because Mitch McConnell was in charge of the Republican-controlled Senate 
defending the position now because they're facing the situation with a Republican-controlled Senate and they have a Republican president, that eliminates any hypocrisy in their position to move forward. I just found it interesting. I thought, hmm, they have yet again found a way to justify their own pathetic behavior. Power grab. It's a power grab is what it is. And, and they just, and what, he, what, what Cruz, who let's be honest about it, Cruz wouldn't know hypocrisy if it slapped him in his face. That is a rationalization to justify uh, moving forward. The reason that Mitch McConnell did not move forward with the Merrick Garland nomination was a complete power grab. It was, and it was, and it paid off because what he did was he held that seat open, as we all know, held the seat open with with the hopes of their of Trump winning the election in November and being able to seat a conservative judge on the Supreme Court. And his hopes came true. And it and the power play worked. And the power play um, worked. And and now four years later, with a much shorter window of time. That he's seeking to do the same thing, and as you pointed out, if if you if, if you can, and you have the legal right to do so, it's up to you to decide whether to move forward or not. But I reject the idea that uh, Cruz uh, asserts that that the situations are different based on whether you are talking about uh, a divided government or a consolidated government. So Cruz, you know, as usual, who, you know. Story. Truth be told, I don't think that they let him in, in on the and the boys' club. I think he still is probably the most disliked senator in Washington, even by the Republicans. So they didn't even tell him what their arguments were. He's just out there freelancing. Um, <laughs> but he's 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 a he's not he's a different kind of hypocrite. I was I was once talk, talking to an elected official. I won't say who. The problem Wait, that I have. You're telling me that you're not going to name names on my show? <laughs> no, I'm not. Not in this case. I'm not. I'm not. This particular person has enough problems out, out, on their own. But um, but I but I said I, I said I said I said you know the problem that I have is that so many elected officials don't seem to have the integrity to hold a grudge. And it's not about your hypocrisy. It's, this is just about y'all don't have any spine. I understand why those senators can't fight for the American people. They can't even stand up for themselves. Well, we saw that in Ted um, Cruz. I mean, he wouldn't even stand up for oh, his own wife. So let's just, no, exactly. we can move past uh, that. Exactly. Let's talk a little bit about the Democrats' response to the Supreme Court vacancy and I would even venture to say, I don't see why Dems need to be involved in the conversation. There's really absolutely nothing that they can do about this. Uh, They can go to their districts and say, we need you to vote, because now using this as a tool to motivate voters, and it's the perfect example of exactly what happens when you don't vote, right? I mean, it's a perfect motivator. But I don't, I'm not so sure that that's what the Dems are doing right now. It's somewhat irritating. I think 
going back to what I said just a minute ago, that the focus needs to be on executing strategy and uh, for winning the election in November. Everything else is distraction. I think that the uh, the Supreme Court vacancy, I agree with you, I see very little chance for it not being seal, filled by our Judge Barrett uh, before Election Day. I think criticizing Judge Barrett and uh, some of the more outrageous things that uh, are being said about her uh, beg people like me to provide context that is not going to look good for Democrats. So I wish y'all would stop. I would agree with that. I mean, this is a woman that is on the federal bench as we speak. This is a woman that's already been vetted. There's there, you know, she's not a newcomer to the show. No, she's not. As far as a conservative judge, the choice for a conservative judge goes, She's infinite. She's head and shoulders more qualified to be on the Supreme Court than Brett Kavanaugh. So there's very little point in criticizing this woman on any basis because if they if they have the political power to put a conservative judge on the bench, then they will. Basements, if you will. So, as an experienced political strategist, what would you tell the Democratic leadership at this stage to do? Vis-a-vis the Supreme Court. Yes. They need to message around the importance of flipping the Senate and taking the White House in order to address the issues that a 6-3 court could potentially put in front of the country. They need to hammer that home because instead, these people talk about, I'm tired, tired, tired of this, Bob. These people talk about, okay, so they get a 6-3 court. Well, they're going to get a 6-3 court. That looks like that's going to happen. Now, what you going to do about it? Well, I, you know, you got a couple of conservative justices in their 70s. Well, you know, I hate to tell you, but Alito and Thomas, if Biden wins, they ain't quitting. They ain't quitting until there's a Republican in the White House. Okay. So there's that. As far as the as far as the court is concerned, there's the precious little you can do. But you know what you can do? You can prepare yourself by accumulating power in Washington to legislate. Because whatever they knock down, you can rebuild. If there is a knockdown of the Affordable Care Act, then you can come back with something that meets constitutional metal according to this conservative court. That's how you fight back. You don't fight back by wringing your hands and saying, well, my God, we've lost the court for a generation. Well, with all due respect, this is going to be more than a generation. Well, it will be more than a generation, Bob, if if Democrats allow it to be. Right. But there's a lot Democrats can do legislatively. Let's be honest about it. For so many years, most of our most our our most significant social decisions in terms of of uh, government things that affect people in their everyday lives, everything from health care, marriage equality, voting rights. And right on down the line, these are issues, even even reproductive rights, these are issues that are left to the Supreme Court because for at least the past 20 
years, 25 years, I would say, I would measure from Newt Gingrich, we have had a completely, or not completely, but almost completely ineffective Congress. And those decisions that had been left to the Supreme Court interpreting existing law, that's how we have left things to, to deal with these issues. The, hopefully, if the Democrats are returned to power with, with a White House and both chambers, there will be, and y'all have had it before, and the Republicans have had it before, and none of you exercise that power effectively. There is so much that could be done in a two-year period in re- relation to voter rights, uh, women's reproductive rights, LGBT rights, because the, the problem is the court rules what is and isn't constitutional. The Congress should be uh, legislating what is and is not legal, and and they just don't do it. Don't you think voters find that disheartening instead of motivating, that Congress doesn't effectively legislate when they have full control, either party on either side, but specifically on the Democratic side, there are so many different motivational factors, it appears to me, with Democrats. Whereas on the Republican side, they have coalesced around one issue, and that is control of the court. So when Democrats have full control, there are so many different measures that are motivating their base that they really can't effectively address all of them whereas the Republicans have one measure to motivate the base. It's a lot easier for them to control that that um, that influence with their voter. Yes, because you have the, the Democratic Party voters are made up of a coalition of people, and that's a little less true when you're talking about Republican voters, which is why conventions look very different. I mean, it just appears to me that Democrats have just so many different issues and even at times conflicting issues that have to be addressed within a legislative body when they have the control to do so. Unlike the Republicans' only issue is to make sure they put conservative justices throughout the judicial system. Can they motivate their base around this one issue? and get them to the polls. I think it can be a motivating issue. In this election, I really don't understand how anybody hasn't, A, decided who they're going to vote for, and B, that in fact they are going to vote. So for those seven people in this country who (laughs) haven't decided whether this election is important enough to vote in, I do think that there is a way to message this Supreme Court thing this situation to say a 6-3 court puts these issues, health care, women's rights, LGBTQ rights, voting rights, these issues potentially are on the chopping block. And at the risk of sounding like one of those old-timers who talks about walking, you know, five miles to school, you know, in the snow, it was uphill both ways. There are a number of people, I believe, who are young enough that some of these issues have never affected them. And hopefully, 
And those are the people, I believe, that Democrats are, should be most concerned about motivating. Older people tend to vote in, in higher percentages. It's those younger voters that are more challenging. But you and I have talked about the fact that sometimes uh, younger members of our community kind of take some stuff for granted. And, you know, the truth of the matter, Bob, is this. If there are people that you can find to talk to when, you're, when you get together with your family or your friends that are old enough, that all of this stuff is not a given because we can remember when women didn't have and when communities of color didn't have and when gay people didn't have and disabled people didn't have. If there are people you can talk to about how that works, was those rights are not cemented those rights are at risk as long as there's living memory of people who were there when those rights came into play so so you've indicated in our conversation that there is all but at seven people who are undecided in the country at this point and and i and i know what you mean by by that comment and and that is that there are really truly very few undecideds at this stage of the game Mm-hmm. by your assessment and yeah i think so and and someone who has had years of experience in poll watching understanding polls and what polls are used for it does appear that joe biden's lead even in the battleground states at this point are holding pretty steady are you comfortable with that lead could play into a win for Joe Biden? Well, I would say this. I think that at this juncture, the race is his to lose now. But I have to remind that four years ago, the race was Hillary Clinton's to lose. And she and did. She lost it. She did lose it. Now, so I am pleased that the Biden campaign is in the position it is you know, less than 40 days from the election. I would not want to be on the Trump team trying to figure out how to close this major gap. Joe's got an advantage right now. Whether he parlays that advantage into a win is going to be up to him and, and, and his campaign. You know, Craig, that is very insightful. I love the, I love how you describe that, that, he has an advantage. Whether he executes on that advantage uh, is entirely up to him and his campaign team. So with that said, I want to thank you so much uh, for joining me today. It's always a pleasure to have you here. Always fun. Always fun to be here. Always a good time. And hopefully the day will come sometime in the next several months where we could physically do some day drinking and uh, and and do these podcasts face-to-face once again. But again, on behalf of my listeners, thank you for being here today. Please click and subscribe for notification of future episodes of Breaking Protocol with Bob Sadowick. And if you haven't had an opportunity to read my book, Breaking Protocol, Forging a Path Beyond Diplomacy, it is available at your favorite online retailer or can be downloaded to your Kindle, tablet, or smartphone. Thank you once again, and many blessings.